I welcome the audience to our podcast series, done by the Review of Democracy, the journal of the Central European Universities, Democracy Institute. My name is László Bencebori, and our guest today is Tomás Dombos, economist, sociologist, and anthropologist, and importantly, the associate of the Hungarian LGBT organization, Hátér Society, out of which name Hátér translates to background in English. Today, we will first talk about the recent and quite infamous Hungarian law that is locally known either as the Child Protection Act, the Anti-Pedophile Law, or the Homophobic Law, according to its various interpretations, and that, that became often referred to in international media as the Hungarian Anti-LGBT Law. Then we will discuss not only the local importance and context of both the law and the surrounding discourse, but also transnational implications and connections. Thus, we will talk about the historical precedents and the contemporary parallels of the law and the surrounding discourse, both in the Eastern and the Western Hemisphere. And with this, I welcome you, Tomás. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Well, thank you for the invitation and covering this topic. Well, I, I think the first main question to discuss, to clarify, would be what are the exact measures and what is the local context of the Hungarian law in question? Yeah, so this is a recently adopted and uh, recently entered into force law. Um, it was um, debated in the Hungarian parliament in June and adopted and it entered into force a few days later. Um, it is originally meant to be an anti-pedophilia law. So uh, following years of discussion about how to strengthen the Hungarian protection of children from pedophilia, the original aim of the law was to um, increase criminal sanctions, create a register of uh, sex offenders, and it did not have um, any LG anti-LGBTQI content. However, uh, just a few days before the final vote, um, when already all the committee discussions have taken place, uh, so really last moment, the uh, governing parties introduced new provisions into the law that have a clearly homophobic and transphobic language. It actually bans access of minors to any content that portrays or promotes homosexuality, uh, transgender identities, or um, um, gender reassignment. Um, it has very broad provisions in the uh, Family Protection Act and the Child Protection Act. Uh, broad provision meaning that basically everyone in Hungary uh, has to abide by the law. Um, even parents uh, cannot provide access to such content to their children. And it also contains more specific provisions regarding media, uh, schools, and um, companies, um, and commercial advertisement. Um, when it comes to media, uh, all content that features LGBTQI persons or this topic uh, can only be shown after 10 o'clock in the evening. So this will basically mean that uh, not in prime, no uh, discussion of the topic should take place in, in the primetime uh, television. Um, regarding the advertisement, commercial advertisements that feature um, homosexuality or transgender identities uh, cannot be shown to people under the age of 18, 
which, you know, looking into how advertising is done, you know, a billboard poster cannot be restricted to under 18s or above 18. So in practice, this would mean a ban on uh, LGBTQI uh, featuring advertisements. And in schools, it makes it impossible for NGOs and experts uh, to be invited to schools to talk about questions of sexuality unless they receive a special license uh, from a state body. It's still not clear what state body will uh, do this. And um, of course, most likely the organizations that would have um, favorable or objective information about sexual or gender minorities would never get such a license. So basically means that uh, programs, uh, educational programs that have been happening in Hungary for the past 20 years um, that introduce um, um, school uh, kids to are usually teens. So um, students between the age of 14 and 18 to these topics, they will no longer be able to operate. Um, furthermore, there have already been a few implementing legislation that uh, was uh, published, uh, the first one covering uh, commercial activities. And it says that in within uh, 200 meters of schools, churches, and youth organizations, uh, such content, books, or films uh, cannot be sold. And if they are sold, they have to be sold no matter where. So whenever, uh, it has to be sold in a special packaging separate from all the other um, uh, publications. So this basically means that um, a stigmatization of any content, whether in the form of print, online, or audiovisual, cannot be made accessible to uh, people under the age of 18. So, which means that this uh, law actually regulates a very broad specter of public life when it comes uh, exactly. to issues. Exactly. I think there are basically three major problems with the law. The first one is any law that you know picks on one minority and targets only that minority is a, is a problematic law. And this is a clearly a stigmatizing law that says that homosexuality or transgender identities are dangerous for children and should not be discussed. And it has an overall stigmatizing and chilling effect on public discussions on LGBTQI issues. The second, uh, of course, is the uh, specific harm it has on minors. Um, of course, there is a, always a discussion about how to talk, how to talk about issues of sexuality with 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 anyone, but specifically with minors. Uh, we are of the opinion that at every age, uh, these issues have to be discussed, of course, always in an age-appropriate way. Of course, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, children in kindergarten should be shown pornographic imagery. That's not what we're talking about. But there is a way to talk about uh, questions covering sexual and gender minorities in an age-appropriate ways. And this law makes this impossible. It makes access to uh, any content, even content that is meant for the protection of children, to be inaccessible. So, for example, we know that many um, LGBTQI youth have uh, questions and problems with their own self self-acceptance. Uh, they don't know what's happening to them. They don't know who they are. They feel that they are alone in the world with uh, feeling the way they feel, they very often face depression, uh, even self-harm and suicide. Um, of course, uh, people under the age of 18 also enter into sexual um, engagement with other people. It's not like you turn 18 and then you start having sex uh, and safer sex practices uh, and information on that would be crucial for these people as well. So from all these uh, really vital information will no longer be accessible to, to minors and it will really uh, undermine their uh, physical and mental health. 
And finally, I think uh, the law has the, um, and unfortunately we've seen this happening in the past few weeks, an encouragement of homophobia and transphobia in the country. So we've seen that the law uh, entitles or encourages people that probably had homophobic and transphobic views before, but they were silent about it, or even if they voiced it, at least they were not violent about it. Unfortunately, we've seen in the past few weeks an increase in uh, homophobic and transphobic hate speech and hate incidents, uh, meaning also uh, physical abuse. So um, we've seen um, same-sex couples uh, attacked on the street and pushed around. Uh, we've heard of people who had a rainbow flag in their uh, window, and then people tried to uh, force entry into their uh, homes. We've heard of uh, people assaulted uh, on public transportation. I'm not saying that these incidents never took place before, but clearly there is an increase in the number of such incidents. So we can surely say that the law impacted Hungarian public life and of course legislature in a huge way. But as you mentioned before, and which actually creates controversy itself, that this was a last-minute modification to the plans of an anti-pedophile law in Hungary, which I think brings up the question that did this come out of the blue? So how has the Orban government related to the local LGBT community? And basically, what kind of themes has the government media emphasized when it comes to this whole issue? I don't think it came out of the blue. Actually, for the past 11 years, we've seen uh, incidents of uh, government homophobia and transphobia. You know, if uh, those following, um, you know, Hungarian political development since uh, the 2010s, a few weeks after the Hungarian government came into power, they said that they're going to introduce a new constitution, a new fundamental law, and it became very clear that they want to introduce a ban on same-sex marriage in the constitution, and that happened. So the constitution that is enforced in Hungary since 2012 defines marriage as a union between a woman and a man. Also, later on, there was a so-called Family Protection Act, uh, which was adopted by the parliament that, that included a exclusionary definition of family. Now, the Constitutional Court at the time found that that is actually unconstitutionally exclusionary. But instead of respecting the decision of the uh, Constitutional Court, the Hungarian parliament then adopted another amendment to the new constitution, defining not only marriage, but this time family also uh, in an exclusionary way. Um, so this has been really with us uh, since the beginning of, two, of the 2010s. And you know, even before, uh, in opposition, Fidesz was always voting against any kind of positive developments, whether it's about uh, equal treatment legislation or hate crime legislation or the introduction of registered partnership for same-sex couples. You know, these were all major uh, pieces of LGBTQI legislation adopted in the period 2002-2010 when the country was... Uh, uh, governed by a socialist liberal and then uh, socialist only uh, government. Uh, so, you know, Fidesz had always a track record of, of, of not being LGBTQI friendly. But what happened in the past two years is uh, basically um, a, a concentrated and very strategic 
building up of a campaign against LGBTQI people. You know, it started with the um, House Speaker, Mr. Crever, saying that uh, same-sex couples uh, raising children are like pedophiles because they only care about their own well-being and they don't care about the children. And he also said a normal homosexual understand that they are second-class citizens and doesn't want to do anything about it. So that, I think that uh, was a major, you know, uh, very important Hungarian politician using a language that uh, even uh, with the homophobia and transphobia of Fidesz was not common. You know, this kind of linking homosexuality to pedophilia, uh, saying second-class citizen, this was not part of the vocabulary of, uh, of Fidesz uh, up until uh, 2019. And then after, uh, after this speech, uh, we've seen an extreme increase in anti-LGBTQI content in um, the public media and also in pro-government commercial media. You know, in Hungary, um, a, a wide section of, of um, supposedly independent and private media is actually controlled by pro-government business people, you know, who bought this media with government loans. So, you know, even though it's legally speaking, it's independent media, but in practice, it's, uh, it's very um, uh, government micromanaged media, not just the public, but also this commercial media. And we've seen especially reporting about developments in Western countries around LGBTQI issues, and, you know, really this kind of scaremongering about uh, how a transgender person was allowed to go to schools or how a person changed their gender a 100 times in two years. And you know, these kind of scandalous uh, stories, you know, have been being published, you know, week after week. And slowly we saw that uh, this uh, kind of government-initiated propaganda is taken over uh, more and more by mainstream politicians as well. And then they started adopting legislation that is in line with this. First, they started with transgender people. So in uh, the spring of 2020, legal gender recognition for trans people was banned. So while before it was possible for a transgender person to have their uh, documents changed to, to reflect their uh, gender identity, so their name and gender marker was changed, that is no longer possible for trans or intersex people in Hungary since 2020. Then there was a restriction on adoption uh, introduced, um, which means that it was never possible for a same-sex couple to adopt as a couple, but it was possible for a person living in a same-sex relationship to adopt individually. And even though that's not completely outlawed now, but you need to get a special permission from a politician, the family uh, affairs minister, who made it very clear that she will not authorize any such adoption. So it's in practice a ban on um, uh, adoption by uh, same-sex couples or anyone living in same-sex uh, relationships. Uh, we've also seen uh, the abolishment of the Equal Treatment Authority, which was the Hungarian equality body that was focusing on discrimination against any uh, minorities. And the role of the Equal Treatment Authority has been taken over by the Commissioner for Fundamental Rights, a person that is appointed by the government, by the parliament, you know, clearly uh, loyal to uh, whatever the government is saying, as opposed to being an independent body, uh, to the level that uh, it's no longer accredited as an independent ombuds, uh, according to the International Organization of um, Human Rights Institutions. So it's not just us who's saying it's no longer independent, but uh, it is widely acknowledged that the commissioner uh, is no longer an independent public body, and they should, they, um, the, the office should be responsible for enforcing um, non-discrimination and, and human rights and 
fundamental rights of LGBTQI people as well. And unfortunately, that's not happening. And finally, there was also, uh, again, uh, um, um, amendment to the fundamental law, introducing two provisions, one saying that the father is male, the mother is female. Uh, a lot of people are asking, what exactly does that mean? No one knows. Um, you know, strictly speaking, it might be read as a transphobic provision about biological men who might be legally female and then thus it's a question whether they are mother or father you know there probably have been five cases in the world where that issue arises. but the court uh, apparently the Hungarian government thinks that it's such a crucial issue that it has to be uh, declared in the uh, fundamental law in the constitution or maybe also a broader interpretation that this means that family consists only of mother and father and thus it somehow could be interpreted to really relating to same-sex um, households or same-sex families. That's not clear. Uh, and also another provision was added into the fundamental law that says that uh, children have the right to be raised according to Christian values and according to their uh, gender identity in line with their sex at birth. So basically a ban on raising a child to be transgender, um, although I don't think any parent or any teacher is planning to do that, but there is such a provision there again in the fundamental law. So this is where we were last December. And of course, we get to um, get to, we got to uh, late uh, spring, May, June, when the um, propaganda law or the uh, homophobic law um, was uh, finally adopted. So this is basically a political campaign that, according to you, has intensified in the last two years, right? Exactly, very clearly. I think this is the op- modus operandi, the, the working logic of the Hungarian government for the past 11 years. They uh, find an enemy or a group of social group or a social actor. They build a, a campaign, a communication campaign around oh, this is really, this group is really harmful, it's really dangerous, but then the Hungarian government will protect you from this uh, imminent enemy. And that enemy has been, you know, um, homeless people, uh, utility companies, banks, Brussels, George Soros, most importantly, of course, migrants uh, for the past four or five years. And I think since the migration, anti-migration, anti-migrant campaign was no longer working very well, I think Hungarians didn't care about it that much. It was just so saturated, the whole public discussions around the migration issue that it no longer worked. And the Hungarian government needed a new enemy that they can play with and they can fight. And unfortunately, LGBTQI people became that enemy. I think there were also two other uh, political reasons why this is uh, useful for the Hungarian government. One being that uh, currently we are um, one year before, or even less than one year before the general elections that is scheduled for uh, next spring in Hungary. And for the first time in uh, 12 years, we're going to have an election when there will be a clear governing parties against a coalition of all the opposition parties, meaning also Jobbik, uh, which uh, used to be um, an extreme right-wing party with very, very homophobic and transphobic views. They you know, were organizing violently against pride marches uh, about a decade ago. So of course, by um, you know, putting LGBTQ issues on the political agenda, it's really easy to split the opposition parties because Jobbik you know, needs to have, or if they want to have some kind of consistency with their past or with their core voters, then they would you know, have a, a, a homophobic or at least a moderate point of view, while most of the other opposition parties are now favoring a full equality of LGBTQI people. So, of course, this uh, putting this issue on the agenda splits the opposition parties and it might even explode uh, the coalition. 
Um, and I think there was also um, a, a consideration that it was very known uh, that the European Commission, um, so EU institutions, would likely be employing sanctions against Hungary in the coming months and years because of rule of law violations, uh, you know, corruption, systematic corruption, uh, lack of media plurality, uh, lack of um, um, independent institutions, etc. And that those kinds of criticism has been coming have been coming from the EU. And of course, the Hungarian government knew that if they put such a, a proposal on the agenda that clearly violates not only international human rights norms, but EU laws as well, the commission will not let this go. And it's true, the commission has started infringement procedure uh, against the country for these, uh, these laws, uh, very quick infringement, uh, as opposed to what's been happening before. And of course, the government is now using this to say that, oh, the European Commission is threatening to withhold funds from Hungary because we are not letting LGBTQI activists to go to our kindergartens and brainwash our children. So as opposed to, you know, speaking about more difficult topics such as, uh, you know, rule of law and judiciary, independence of judiciary, they can just say, oh, the EU is punishing us uh, because we are saying no to LGBTQ propaganda. So I think it's also giving the possibility for the Hungarian government to reframe uh, politically its uh, relation with the EU and to undermine the still quite high credibility of EU institutions in Hungary, um, which uh, it seems like the government is trying to do. So it's trying to really um, um, have a campaign against the EU. Um, and this anti-LGBTQI campaign is partly an anti-EU campaign as well. So this, this is basically like the anti-LGBT law and the surrounding campaign is tied to an external threat in this sense. So like, uh-huh. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the campaign, the way the campaign has been built up is basically that there is this tiny minority that uh, historically has been uh, pro prosecuted, but it no longer is prosecuted anywhere, not even in Hungary, it enjoys full human rights and, and recognized. But then because they are a minority, they have become tyrants and they want to, you know, they want to take over. It's a minority that wants to become a majority and they want to brainwash everyone and they want to send people to prison that think differently. And uh, that's the general discourse. And of course, that general discourse is also playing with this idea that all these local LGBTQI organizations are funded by the European Union and by George Soros, by some, you know, Western uh, government. So it really is a, um, a campaign that, of course, plays with this foreign LGBTQI people and activism and these values being foreign to Hungary and how the Hungarian government will protect the traditional values and protect this uh, external infiltration of the country. Okay, I think these are very interesting things that you mentioned, especially since it sounds like basically the government is posing itself as representing basically a nationally exceptionalist discourse, that we have the native values of the Hungarian nation under protection and like against external threats. The LGBT ideology, as they would put it, that is backed up by the, the European Union as a, as a foreign empire that would like to impose its will upon Hungary and its nation. And I think this brings up the question whether this is an exceptional case, whether this is a Hungarian invention by the government and its media, or whether there are transnational parallels or even precedents to the Hungarian anti-LGBT law and its discourse. 
Um, I don't think it's specific to Hungary. Of course, there's always, uh, you know, national specificities, but uh, it's really interesting. I just read a book uh, that, uh, that started with a quote saying that, uh, that uh, we need to protect our society from the uh, foreign homosexual imposition. And this was a quote uh, from the 19th century in the UK. So, uh, you know, um, having this kind of a linking uh, a sexual um, difference or sexual diversity to foreignness is actually a, a political trope that has been uh, with us since the beginning of modernity and since public discussions about homosexuality uh, started. It's very common in uh, non-Western countries, Africa, uh, Middle East, to talk about uh, how Western powers and their human rights discourse is pushing homosexuality on us and we want to protect our traditional um, uh, values. So it's, it's there in this kind of East-West dynamic as well. And it has been there in Eastern Europe as well, um, you know, starting most importantly with Russia that has for um, over a decade now, uh, using um, uh, homosexuality or opposing homosexuality with a traditional family values framework and in you know, various uh, United Nations declarations that have been posed or, or crafted by, um, by Russia, um, a coalition of like-minded uh, countries um, having this debate in, in, in the UN between you know, Western and non-Western uh, powers. We've seen in Russia the adoption of a propaganda law quite similar to the Hungarian one, legally speaking a bit different. It is not, the Hungarian law not only talks about promotion, but also portrayal of uh, homosexuality. So the Russian law in that sense is, um, is more, restrict, more restricted. The Hungarian one is bro more broader in its censorship. But then the Russian law has very clear sanctions, administrative, not criminal, but uh, sanctions. The Hungarian law is, doesn't have directly uh, sanctions coming with it, although some general sanctions uh, in the media law or in um, you know, commercial activities uh, might be at play, but um, there are no direct sanctions specifically uh, on violating these provisions. So the Russian law is in one way worse than the Hungarian one. In other ways, it's less uh, bad as the Hungarian one. We've also seen um, similar campaigns against, anti uh, against LGBTQI people pop up in other countries. We've seen um, um, a referendum uh, on uh, same-sex marriage and registered partnership taking place in uh, Slovenia and Croatia in recent years. Uh, a failed uh, referendum in Romania about the inclusion of a heterosexual definition of marriage and family in the constitution. So, you know, this issue has been used by uh, Eastern European um, um, politicians to garner, mobilize their electorate, usually in times when uh, they have some other political problems and they want to divert attention away. It seems to uh, work very well to re-thematize the political discussions, to put this agenda and then uh, it can um, you know, take attention away uh, from what's happening in the country otherwise. I think it's really interesting to see the pattern in Hungary as well. We had the first cycle of the COVID uh, crisis in Hungary. The day after the uh, state of um, danger and, uh, was declared by the uh, parliament, the banning legal gender recognition was introduced. Uh, then uh, the second cycle of COVID came and then a day on the same day as the state of danger was adopted by the parliament, the amendment to the uh, propaganda law was uh, proposed. And finally, 
two days after the Pegasus uh, scandal around uh, the use of spyware against journalists and uh, uh, businessmen, business people in Hungary was, you know, hit the Hungarian media. Two days later, a referendum was called on the um, on this law. So I, I don't think that, you know, maybe once it's a coincidence, but when it's so systematically happening, this is really about how to put like re- reframe and re-thematize public mm-hmm. discussions around an issue where the Hungarian government thinks they have the majority. Whether that's right or not, it's more debated. There have been some recent public opinion polls that actually show that the Hungarian society is quite split. And the specific questions that the government is putting on the agenda, they have the majority, but if asked a bit differently, more broadly, and looking into their implications, then actually the Hungarian majority is not as homophobic and as our Hungar- as our government is. But it's true that the core support base, the core electorate of the governing parties is way, way more homophobic than the average Hungarian society as well. So with their core supporters, this kind of political uh, moves that they make seem to work. And of course, that's what they need to do. They need to um, you know, mobilize their own voters next year when it comes to elections. And can they mobilize new layers of society? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, the um, It seems like there is still quite a large, although ever increasingly small number of people that is undecided on these questions that, that don't have a strong opinion about it. And um, there was an analysis actually that shows that there is a large chunk of undecided voters. Uh, they used to be you know, extremist voters uh, and currently are with Fidesz, but they are not committed Fidesz voters who are very homophobic. And with them, it might might make it, uh, you know, it might make those people stick uh, even when, you know, there is economic problems, etc., which easily splits them from Fidesz. But if there is an ide- a strong ideological connection with the with, with Fidesz, then they might stick around. Um, so maybe it, 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 um, it relates to that. I don't think it's bringing in new people that are currently not uh, voting for Fidesz, but it might keep the, the camp together, so to say. For a second, I would like to get back to what you mentioned in your previous answer, that there seems to be this West-East dynamic within which, like Eastern countries, by which you can mean Eastern Europe, but you also mentioned other continents as well, point at LGBT rights and the LGBT movement as something foreign of corrupting Western influence. But on the other hand, many point out that the homophobic discourse in various countries, in the former colonies, for example, has a Western influence on them. So they adapted the Western scientific discourse in the 19th century. Colonial, colonial laws imposed homophobia in a new way, unknown before to these societies. And when it comes to the Russian law that you mentioned, many mentioned that it is directly influenced by the so-called Section 28 introduced by the government of Margaret Thatcher in Great Britain in uh, 1988. So can we also trace not only like um, opposition between West and East, but also like a dynamic of transferring such ideas from one hemisphere to another. Very clear. I think if we look at it in a historic perspective, then, uh, you know, European culture or Judeo-Christian culture, Judeo-Christian inspired Western culture 
I know was not a safe haven for uh, sexual and gender minorities, the exact opposite. You know, historically speaking, um, uh, Judaism and Christianity were very strongly uh, opposing uh, homosexuality. You know, of course, the text uh, in the Bible can be recited. Uh, for this and, you know, for many, many um, hundreds of hundreds of years, West uh, homosexuality or same-sex sexual relations were persecuted in Europe, while uh, many regions that we currently, uh, you know, label as homophobic or transphobic, uh, specifically Arab countries, had, you know, a thriving um, uh, same-sex desire. If you look at, you know, literature or just, you know, any, any assessment, um, of, 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 of social toleration, you know, there are dozens of uh, European uh, travelers who describe how surprised they were by how, uh, um, how relaxed uh, these societies were about um, sexual relations, especially between men. So historically speaking, we were not, uh, Europe was not uh, the pioneer in LGBTQI rights. And even within Europe, uh, it's not like Western Europe was the source of of, uh, of gay liberation in the beginning, um, you know, the um, first movements that that uh, that started in in Europe uh, against um, um, the uh, punishment or uh, persecution of, of homosexuality, of course, the French Revolution, that's one, but then it was as an organized movement, it was Germany, and very strong links to Hungarian, early Hungarian gay pioneers. So for example, many people might not know that the word homosexual, uh, which was a creation of the 19th century, in order to come up with a neutral term, uh, as opposed to sodomy or pederasty, all those um, religiously inspired and very degrading terms, homosexuality was introduced in the German language, but by a Hungarian poet and, 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 um, and, and social reformer. So, um, you know, if, even, um, you know, Hungary played an important role in, in those uh, very early um, homosexual or homophile um, movements. If uh, we look at, you know, the United States is very often perceived to be the, uh, you know, the, the haven of, of, of um, gay liberation. And in the United States, in some states, up until 2003, homosexuality was a criminal offense. Uh, and it was only a, a decision by the American Supreme Court in 2003 that declared that homosexuality under the U.S. Constitution is cannot be uh, prosecuted criminal, uh, persecuted criminally, or it, it, it should not be. Uh, it's part of private life, and it should not uh, be governed by criminal law. And that's 2003, you know. And 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 in in many Eastern European countries, you know, it happened in the in the 50s, 60s. So again, these kind of dynamics that that we we see currently, historically speaking, were not there. And yes, you were right to point out that in the in the uh, 1980s related to the HIV AIDS epidemic and a lot of prejudices around that prompted the uh, United Kingdom conservative uh, government of Margaret Thatcher to have a similar um, um, anti-homosexuality uh, anti campaign that resulted in the adoption of Section 28 that banned any public use of any use of public money for promoting homosexuality and having discussions on these issues in schools. So yes, the Russian propaganda law is inspired by Section 28, either directly um, or, or more indirectly. Uh, so I think it is very important to not pretend that these historical developments uh, were not there and, and, and never to disregard the fact that, um, that Europe played a role in uh, not only positively shaping attitudes towards LGBTQI people, but also more historically negatively also um, around the world. 
Um, and I think it's, um, you know, the discussion and um, if uh, someone uh, looks at recent literature in, uh, you know, uh, transnational relations, um, international relations, you know, transnational movements, etc., this idea of uh, homonationalism, and that is basically using, using the uh, positive um, acceptance of homosexuality and LGBTQI people as a marker of civilization and saying, oh, we are the civilized West, as opposed to, you know, all those countries that are uncivilized, they're barbaric, and they kill and punish their or penalize their uh, sexual and gender minorities. So this discourse is very strong. And, you know, many people say now that uh, historically, it was, you know, the uh, the situation of women that that was used like that, that, you know, the West, in the West, women have been, you know, liberated in all those barbaric countries, they still oppress their women. And more increasingly, it is LGBTQI people in, you know, uh, in UN documents, uh, many of these intergovernmental um, organizations, etc. And while I don't think that we need to say that that, that means that this topic should not be discussed, etc. Of course, that's not what we're saying. But when all these Western powers are criticizing non-Western countries about their uh, approach to um, sexuality and um, LGBTQ people, we should always, you know, be a bit more critical and say, you know, what exactly is happening here? Is it not about, you know, uh, portraying themselves as some kind of uh, morally superior, uh, more civilized country, and then using or misusing or abusing uh, the, um, the situation of LGBTQI people to create that image of themselves as civilized and uh, moral. I think these are very important observations as for the whole discourse and its um, various aspects. But you mentioned that like in the era of, of the Margaret Thatcher government, Basically, the anti-LGBT discourse in Great Britain was, of course, like influenced by the AIDS pandemic, as they would put it. But it was also centered about, around the perceived, self-perceived rights and health of children. And the same would repeat in Russia and would repeat in Hungary then afterwards. But I, what I find interesting that these discourses go in parallel to local discourses of immigration and the threat to the nation. In, the, in this sense, are these discourses necessarily related? So can we like can we trace parallels in the racist or anti-immigration discourse and the homophobic discourse in these cases? You know, it's uh, for some people it was very surprising when in the early two thousands, uh, you know, some of the older listeners might remember still Pim Fortuyn in in the Netherlands, who was a uh, a gay right-wing politician in the Netherlands, and he was very pro-gay, but very anti-migration. And that was a very strange mixture for many people in, in Hungary and many people around the world, because, of course, historically, we think about, you know, right-wing authoritarian people who are against all the minorities, including sexual and gender minorities and women and religious minorities and migrants. And then there are all those, you know, left-wing or liberal parties that, uh, that support all these people. And I think that that really showed that that's not necessarily the way to go, that actually these, these are not, you know, clear packages. It, it can be broken up. And we, since then, we've seen actually in many European countries where the acceptance of homosexuality or transgender people have increased significantly. So it's no longer a divisive social issue that that it is played as a card against, for example, migrants. You know, there is a lot of debate about uh, how um, um, some immigration authorities are using, um, you know, uh, 
putting people in training programs to change their views about LGBTQI people, or they deny access to certain migrants, arguing that if you don't accept homosexuals, you have no place in our society. Now, interestingly, in, in Eastern Europe, and most, most recently, and specifically with the Hungarian government, the migration, it's, it's more, more the traditional package of anti-migrant and anti-LGBTQI. And in the way, at least in Hungary, but I think I've seen it in a few other countries as well, that the argument goes that, oh, all those Western countries, they need the migrants because they are in a demographic crisis, because uh, not, not enough children are born, and not enough children are born because homosexuality is promoted and accepted. So um, in the, you know, the Hungarian government is, is partly saying that, oh, we will not need the migrants because we support traditional family values, so we will have a lot of children. We don't support homosexuality, we will have a lot of children, so we will not need migration. So this is another way of, you know, how the migration and the LGBTQI issue uh, is linked. Of course, in yet another discourse, uh, and we've seen this uh, increasingly, even in Hungary as well, this argument that, oh, you are uh, you cannot represent uh, a point of view that promotes the rights of sexual minorities as well as migrants because those are fundamentally opposing and you know, migrants are uh, murdering uh, sexual and gender minorities in Western Europe. So that discourse is present in Western Europe, but also increasingly in Eastern European countries. I think when politicians recognize that uh, the atti social attitudes towards LGBTQ people have changed, then they, they try to change their discourse a, a bit. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see actually in, in uh, speeches by Orban, who sometimes, you know, very often talks about traditional family values and, you know, how we think marriage is important and that, and, you know, we don't, believe in LGBT equality of LGBTQI people, etc. And then, you know, a few days later, when he talks about something else, he says, we don't want migrants because we don't want to import sexism and homophobia. Uh, we are not importing sexism and homophobia. We have quite a lot of sexist and sexism and homophobia already. Yes, Prime Minister. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. And I think it's very important to see that these, these kind of ideological packages are not necessarily packages. And depending on, you know, the local political dynamics, you know, the persons involved, the, uh, the local discourses, it actually might make very strange combinations of, 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 uh, of uh, ideologies and attitudes in, in some countries. Especially since, like you mentioned, like the Hungarian prime minister or like the whole government discourse sometimes or many times different like differentiates between LGBT people and LGBT activism. Like LGBT people are oftentimes mixed with the latter, but still like Orban said in some of his German interviews that he would like to defend the rights of homosexuals as such. He thinks that it's a it's necessity of the majority to, to defend the rights of the minority, as opposed to which we have the anti-LGBT activism discourse like enforced. Uh, exactly. I mean, he also said that, oh, yeah, LGBTQ people have rights, but there is a red line. And that red line is that they should not touch our children, you know, again, you know, playing with this um, pedophilia idea, you know, specifically like touching children um, in that in that way. Uh, yeah, I think it, it really shows that that an open and blatant homophobia no longer works in the Hungarian society. So you have you need a bit more sophisticated arguments to be able to talk in a way that it's not fully recognizing, of course, the rights of LGBTQI people, but not fully undermining either. 
you know, a few years ago, Orban gave a speech uh, when he was asked, he said, we are in a very delicate balance between the rights of the minority and the rights of the majority. And if either party wants to push forward, that will disrupt this uh, stability. Uh, so, yeah, I think in his opinion, uh, and many conservative or, 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 or right-wing parties, you know, in Hungary, all the rights of LGBTQI people are, are secured. You know, we're very far from that. Of course, we don't have same-sex marriage. We don't have recognition of uh, same-sex parents. We no longer have uh, legal gender recognition for trans people. And interestingly, actually, and the most recent public opinion polls show that on those, you know, core issues, actually, Hungarians have become a lot more accepting in recent years. So uh, support for same-sex marriage is at currently 59%. Support for uh, adoption by same-sex couples around 60% in a majority now. So, of course, the government is no longer talking about that. They're talking about LGBTQI activists going into kindergartens and uh, brainwashing your children to be make them gay and transgender. That's basically the discourse now, uh, because of course, when put it when put that way, uh, more more people resonate with the homophobic or transphobic uh, position. Does this have a connection? Because according to my knowledge, this whole emphasis on the modern small family as a value, as opposed especially to other corrupting influences, is an American evangelist slogan. So, like, it can be traced somehow. The often cited, actually, influence of the American alt-right or evangelist discourse on what Orban and the government party has to say in Hungary. You know, very clearly traceable that the um, kind of Russian traditional family values frames and organizations and the United States fundamentalist uh, evangelical uh, movements are very strongly linked. Uh, they go to meetings. There are these major, big international events, the World Congress of Families, for example, uh, where uh, the kind of Russian geopolitical games and the American uh, religious games somehow meet. And, you know, we, we've seen actually that uh, a lot of money is put into uh, homophobic and transphobic campaigns or anti-LGBTQI campaigns by American um, conservative groups, uh, conservative religious groups. Uh, why do they do that? That's a big question. Of course, you know, Christianity does have that kind of uh, proselytizing view that, you know, we can spread the religion and it's important to spread these kind of views everywhere. But it also is explained partly by them losing ground at home. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just very, very difficult in the U.S. to mobilize and uh, and and to spend the money because they they lost the public opinion uh, in the U.S. So they moved to you know Eastern Europe. They moved to um, African countries. You know, a few years ago it was a major, major um, uh, debate about Uganda. Um, um, it was a country that was always um, uh, criminalizing homosexuality, but they wanted to um, um, make the legislation stricter and in some cases would penalize with uh, the death penalty, uh, homosexuality. And, you know, it's by now it, it's clearly traced that that whole government campaign was financed by a few uh, major American religious uh, donors. And uh, they, you know, helped with money as well as with uh, with campaigning tactics. Um, so again, uh, the the clear East-West dynamic that oh the West is perfect and the East is uh, or the non-West or the South is is uh, is just homophobic and transphobic. It's a it's a much more complicated picture with with different actors in different countries playing their uh, political games with this group. As you mentioned several times throughout this uh, 
interview, which like which with this statement, I agree that the West is not perfect. There are many revenants or actually many influences coming from there as for the homophobic discourse. But you also mentioned that, for example, in the American case, these voices are somehow losing their ground on the native soil as such. But in your opinion, can they gain ground? Can homophobia gain ground in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, and in other parts of the world? Or can we actually look at, look at the future in a more optimistic light? I'm, I don't have a very clear um, uh, opinion on this, to be honest, because I think that the case of Hungary shows that legislatively you can go back. We've had in, in, for 20 years in Hungary, you had legal gender recognition for transgender people, and now you don't. That's a very clear going backwards and, and, and a backsliding on specifically mm-hmm. rights that have been given. There has not been major backslides in any country so far that we know. There have been a few countries that increased uh, penalties for homosexuality in Africa, but we don't know of any country where same-sex marriage was introduced and then it was taken back. We don't know any country where, um, you know, um, the rights of LGBTQI people were, um, were put forward and then it was taken back. Hungary is quite unique in that. But we've seen countries in in which public opinions have deteriorated. And uh, a good example for that is Russia. So Russia in the early 90s, for example, if you look at the few public opinion polls from the time, it shows that the rate of acceptance for homosexuality was higher in Russia in the early 90s than it was uh, at the peak of the um, um, uh, propaganda law campaign by Putin. Uh, So I think that 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 especially in countries with a very strong uh, centralized media where basically the media works as a propaganda machinery, um, you can have situations in which, um, you know, economic difficulties, uh, frustration of people is you know, targeting a minority and it can create uh, sharply and very quickly deteriorating public opinions. I think the um, you know, uh, anti-Semitism in in many Europe, many European countries between the two world wars was such that you know, in many countries you had higher rates of acceptance, and then you know, uh, in a in a decade or so, uh, we we got to uh, the concentration camps and uh, the killing of uh, millions of Jews. So, yeah, I I don't think history is 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 a linear movement forward to uh, to progress. Uh, yes, of course, we have much more protections, international protections against Holocaust-type uh, genocide or uh, the curtailing of a minority's rights. But if even if not to that level, but backsliding, unfortunately, is, I think, possible. I think this is a perfect note to end the interview on. So with this, I would like to thank you for accepting the invitation and for your talk. I think several very interesting and very important issues and aspects have been mentioned throughout this interview. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation.